Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of the show, more than 570, I think, episodes of the show, they're all free. Your support makes a difference. I invite you to support the podcast at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer can do, I've done. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. How are you doing? I hope you're well. Uh, my name is Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles, and I have David Shields on the program for, I believe, the third time. He has two books out. One, of, one is called The Trouble with Men, Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power. That one is available from Mad Creek Books. And the other book is called Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump, An Intervention. This book is available from Thought Catalog Press. So... Uh, David Shields, one of our more prolific and provocative and interesting writers. I always have a good time talking with him. You're going to hear our conversation momentarily. Uh, so I feel relaxed. You know, my wife has some friends in town. I always call her my wife. Her name's Carrie. Carrie has some friends in town. And, uh, they are, you know, they have the kids out at the beach. So I've been kind of on my own. I went to a yoga class. This is, I'm recording this on a Saturday. It's, it's, it's actually 420 when I am recording this. I am not, uh, under the influence, but I am relaxed. And, uh, so I was like, you know, I'm going to go to a yoga class. I'm going to stretch out. And, uh, I went in, like unrolled my, uh, my yoga mat on the floor and uh, I looked to my left and there is a uh, beautiful celebrity next to me. 
which, I, you know, when you live in Los Angeles, you go to a yoga class, that can happen. And I'm not going to name the celebrity. I know I should. I know people would, you know, you want, you want to know who it is, but I feel weird about that. I don't want to violate anybody's privacy. I don't know. I feel like as a, uh, as a matter of honor, I'm not going to divulge who it is. But, I, you know, I was trying to, like, focus on my breathing, like, stay in the zone. And yet I was like, wow, there's a celebrity <laughs> who is my age. I'm, four, you know, I'm in my 40s. And, like, I'm like, wow, like, this, she looks fantastic. She looks a lot younger than I do. Which I suppose is uh, how it should be. And then, you know, after the yoga class ended, I uh, walked to a uh, sushi restaurant. For some reason, I've been craving like Japanese food. been thinking about it a lot. And uh, so I went into this uh, sushi restaurant for a lunch, a late lunch. And the place was empty. And I ordered, uh, I ordered my lunch and I was sitting there. And I was kind of like looking through my phone and I'm tweeting. And there's nobody else in there. And uh, the music is playing. And then as I'm sitting there, not tweeting, not looking, I'm not doing anything. I'm just kind of sitting there waiting for my food. And uh, the song uh, Hello by Lionel Richie comes on. I don't know what, (laughs) I don't know what the point is. I just felt like it was kind of like a good moment, you know, it felt like very, uh, what's the word? It was like perfect 420 experience, but also just kind of a perfect experience when you're alone in a restaurant, you're the only customer, which, uh, by the way, I don't have a problem with that. I like that. I like being the only customer. I like being alone in a restaurant. I also like uh, feeling like I'm somehow saving the restaurant or like making the people who work there feel better. I feel sad for empty restaurants. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, David Shields is my guest. Two books out this year. Uh, the first one, The Trouble with Men, available from Mad Creek Books. The second one, Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump. 
is available from Thought Catalog. It is my great pleasure to share this conversation with you. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is David Shields. I mean, that's a whole huge topic, Brad, as you can probably imagine. One is sort of my standard joke response is, I'm not really that prolific. They're all brief, collaborative, and plagiarized. So, you know, there's not like, you know, that's that's a joke. I hope the audience gets it that it's a joke. You know, I often do a remix of other people's stuff, like the Trump book, say, has a lot of quotes, but the trouble of, with men. But the amount of research that mm-hmm. you have to do, because I've tried, I've done, you know, some collage you did, yeah, work. Yeah, you did board, yeah. It's a lot of work. Tell me about it. And I mean, to, to make it cohere is not, not an easy feat. You and I are very interested in whatever you want to call it, bricolage, uh, assemblage, collage. And, you know, I think, I don't know what to say. One, I would say that my agent, hi, Matt, you know, thinks I should slow down. I think there's a quality of, you know, as they say, flooding the market. It's sort of like, okay, another book by David Shields. It's collage. It might be interesting. It might not. But there might be a quality not that I'm, you know, some big commercial entity. So, but so I think there's one thing is that the books are are brief, and they really are focused. How do you how do you conceive of them? Like, do you do you start with a question that you're trying to answer? Like, how do you structure a project? I think that's exactly it. I mean, I have this whole riff I do on how one does a book like this, and in a way, the form of say trouble with man is quite similar, isn't it, to, in a way, nobody hates Trump more than Trump. I really do feel like, without sounding too grandiose, I start with an, a, a question that I'm haunted by. I've, I've always have loved this idea of W.H. Ons, <clears throat> excuse me, great art is clear thinking about mixed feelings. You may have seen me quote that. I always quote it, and my students always roll their eyes when I quote it again. So I take a subject about which I'm very ambivalent to take these two subjects, even though politically I work quite hard to end the reign of terror that is Donald Trump. As a performer, I find him extraordinary. I mean, he's he's an extraordinary performance art maestro. And I, I had a guilty pleasure. I thought he, at the time I wrote the book, I think... His chops are going down as he's getting older, or people. I, he's damnably hard to get a handle on. And I think the chatter class on the left and media folks and people on Democratic candidates, he's very hard to push back against for all kinds of complicated reasons. So basically, I sort of start with a question uh, that I'm, you know, generally a huge question like reality or race or sex or death or celebrity, some big topic. And then I do what I call shoot a lot of film, not literally, although sometimes literally, in which I just gather stuff for months, sometimes years. I mean, Trouble with Men, I was, ta- I have been taking notes on that book for probably 15 years. At one point, the book was 3,000 pages long oh of just God. stuff. And then I sort of, I keep on shooting film and researching and reading and emailing people. 
And then at a certain point, I feel like I'm no longer learning anything. All the insights are starting to repeat. At that point, I sort of compress, 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 winnow, 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 by which I mean I sort of get rid of 90% of it. I mean, 3,000 pages became a very brief 30,000-word, 138-page book. But I, if you want, I can talk some more about it. But I think that you're exactly right. I begin with a personal, cultural, and human cataclysm, something which I find I'm obsessed with and which I think, in my, in my grandiosity, carries larger human resonance. And then I think we talked a bit about this the last time you were here, but it's just about the nuts and bolts of organizing the research that you do. Can you refresh me on that? Yeah. I mean, in a way, I mean, you know, the, the you and I have talked about it a lot, and I am a genuine fan of, of your book, Board, which to me exemplifies that awfully well. Basically, I, you know, let's say to take Trouble with Men, it's 3,000 pages. 80% of it or 90% of it is actually draw. So I go through and read it with an unbelievably gimlet eye, like I'm looking to get rid of almost all of it. And that's the most trepidatious part in which you say, okay, I've got hundreds of pages or sometimes literally thousands of pages. Is there really anything here? And I basically get rid of anything which I find predictable, safe, uh, corny, sentimental, self-protective, anything that just feels easy. And I try to keep only stuff, frankly, that makes me nervous, that makes, that feels like it's getting at some uncomfortable stuff. And then um, a big part of it there, let's say I've got, say, 3,000 pages narrowed down to, say, a couple hundred pages. At that point, a big, a big question for me is, do I cut it vertically or do I cut it horizontally? Vertically means many chapters, you know, say in reality, hunger, say a chapter on memory, a chapter on hip hop, a chapter on, um, on reality TV. And then horizontally would be something like, um, say, I think of say Maggie Nelson's bluettes, say tw- 240 brief fragments. So basically, is it AAA, BBB, CCC, DDD, or is it ADBCDABCDA? And that becomes, you know, book by book, it varies. And then a really important thing to me, this might be too much information. No, no, it's good. It's good because it's a listener. It's really things that you and I are really interested in, I think, both. You know, I'm seeing some books that you have on your shelves, like Jenny Ophel's Department of Speculation, like that's a that's a really interesting example. Of I, mar- I marvel at that the compression of that book. Compression is what this is all about. Is someone else could have written that as a seven hundred page, six hundred page, or four hundred page novel, but she just that's the whole excitement to me of this form. To be honest, compression, concision, and velocity. Basically, that you're assuming and expecting the reader to fill in the gaps. So if she, say, if Jenny in that book, if she makes a tiny gesture, the, the, you can fill in those 10 years of that particular marriage that we don't need chapter and verse in as we might get in, say, a Jane Smiley novel. I mean, Jane Smiley is a good writer, but 
you know, that would be a different gesture. And then the big question for me, just to finish this rather lengthy uh, discourse, is um, a terribly important thing to me is that, you know, collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled, as I like to say, by which I mean the book still has to have incredible momentum. And so the whole the whole challenge of it is to get the work so that it doesn't feel like random hopscotch, but there feels like there's a beautiful method to the madness as you're excavating more and more deeply the very material that you're that you're meaning to explore and that's a subjective choice like in in my opinion trouble with man and nobody hates trump have real a real drive to them not a conventional narrative drive but there's a i'm sort of gaining i hope new ground in every chapter but for many people probably a reader who wants to read you know a raymond chandler novel the book doesn't deliver that kind of narrative gyration, I guess. Well, but I think that good, like good collage uh, art, good collage literature in this case, can fool you in a way that maybe um, like writing in a minimalist style can fool you. Like you know the 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 undergraduate English major who reads Raymond Carver and thinks like oh. You know, that's easy. That's easy. But there's nothing there. Yeah. Right. And then you look at collage and you go, oh, you just got to take, you know, chunks and bits of people's work and, and mix in some of your own. And then you got a book and it's like, sit down and try it. Oh, contraire. I mean, I think it's the hardest. You know, I like to claim rather preemptorily that, you know, collage is an evolution beyond narrative that I think it's there's nothing that's more exciting. I always remember I don't know if you know and like David Markson's work. Is he a writer? Sure, yeah. You know? I mean, he's a huge influence on me. But I remember somebody's blurb, maybe Sven Burkert's on the back of a, a David Markson book. Perhaps uh, this is not a novel or, or maybe Vanishing Point. And Markson or uh, Burkert's or somebody said, for... A bibliophile, this book is an absolute page turner. Like I can't put Markson down. Yeah. Because first of all, it's so exciting on an intellectual and emotional and metaphysical level. And second, Markson works in what he calls beats, you know, musical beats. And that to me the excitement of that kind of work is that if it really works the reader starts to get in rhythm with the author's beats and it feels like a really serious conversation and a very intimate one as well. Um, There's this wonderful line, which I always quote of David Foster Walls, who was asked, what's so great about literature? And he said that, uh, you know, that we're existentially alone on the planet. You can't know what I'm thinking and feeling and I can't know what you're thinking and feeling and that, the literature at its best is a, a bridge built across the abyss of human loneliness. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence of Wallace's argument. And I feel like the kind of work I love to read and write and teach, you know, some of the books that we're talking about, Mary Rufall, Jenny Ophel, David Markson, the stuff that I try and do. To me, if, 
it really accomplishes what it sets out to do. It feels like an incredibly intimate and significant conversation. Well, it's funny that you say that because I feel like the presence of David Markson in those books, while not at surface level, maybe as explicit as uh, one might normally be conditioned to expect if you're reading memoir or autofiction, you know, you, you read those books and you start Which to books? the, the Marx and books and yeah. you, you start to, you start to see him in his apartment in Manhattan Utterly. and you're just, you know, it's, it's actually really moving, <laughs> very moving. And yet it's not, um, you know, it's, there, there's not a ton of him there, but there's enough. And then all of the, um, collaging and quoting that he does of other people's work. And, um, you can feel him as a reader in there. So I don't Can know his, you ever? his, yeah. pre, his presence is heavy, even though it is like, you know, sprinkled lightly throughout to say the least. I mean, there's, I think of this, this, I mean, I, I have reread those four, those, those last four books of Marx and over and over and over again. I just love vanishing point reader's block, excuse me, the last novel. And this is not a novel. I mean, those are amazing books and I'm sort of a rarity in not particularly loving. I don't know if you love Wittgenstein's mistress. No, I, I was just going to say. It's such a bore, right? I, I'm the same. I, the I don't get that, people who, who, who like that book. It's him trying to figure out the form, and it still feels very old-fashionedly novelistic, right? This might be like one of the, the most, uh, like the, this is like peak nerdiness for the other people. Podcast, I know what you but, mean. But oh, that we don't like Wittgenstein's <laughs> mistress. Hold the phone. Yes, yeah, fascinating. But I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that, because I've always, I always feel like, and I feel the same way when uh, people talk about David Foster Wallace's work. I'm like, I love it's his essays. Essay. Of course, yeah. it's you the know? essays. And no. I feel like there's something deficient. It's like, Not at all. Like, a big part of being a writer for me is finally learning to trust your own nerve endings. I mean, I just know that for me, say, Wallace's essays, I just love, and when David Foster Wallace killed himself, I spent a lot of the next couple of years just reading and rereading those essays to feel his presence. I personally had almost no interest in, in reading the novels. Or did you meet him? Didn't you? A couple me? times. A couple times. You yeah. did, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you actually... And we weren't close, but I had a fascinating conversation with him once that was just, I just, the main thing I came away with is that he lo- he let you get away with precisely nothing. If you made an assertion as the, the philosopher that he was, he was, he was, he was trained to be, he would go, well, let's question that, that premise. You know, he was like the best possible conversational combatant. And I feel like I had to really be on on my game because he was questioning every premise and it kind of got me questioning every, every premise of walls. Like, you know, I brought him to my class in order to talk about that essay of his on irony in television. I really, as smart as that essay is, I think it's really wrong. You know, like I, I just think there's no such thing as getting behind past irony. I mean, irony is, built into the human condition. I mean, and, you know, anyway. Um, but anyway, in terms of, I think of this line of Marxens where he says something like, and it's not always clear with him, do you agree that it's not always clear if it's his line or if it's someone else's or if it's a mashup of him and someone else. But anyway, there's a line in Marx where he says, uh, how dare he think... He could pull down a single leaf from 
the laurel tree of art without paying for it with his life, which is me an incredibly beautiful line. And what more do you need to know about someone than that particular line? It doesn't even matter if he read it and loved it or wrote it or remixed it. Like everything you need to know about David Markson is in his quotation of that particular line. I mean, that's all of Markson's project asking. Basically, he's obsessed with mortality and he's always asking, is is art of any use against the onrushing night? And of course, there's no easy answer, but he's obsessed with that particular question, obviously. Do you have a long-term sense... Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about how you conceive of your books and how you get into a project where you start with a question or a big uh, topic that offers a lot of complexity and nagging questions. Do you have like a list of topics that you're working through? And I know what you mean. I'm sorry, Brad, you're about to, well, to finish your question. <clears throat> that's basically it. I mean, do you have like, do you have a list? Do you have like a long plan? <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, you know, it's so funny that you you say that. I mean, in a way I've been sort of thinking about, I and mean, obviously I haven't, you know, I'm just scratching the surface of the universe, but, you know, I feel like I've definitely have written a book on death called the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead, which is sort of a, an attempt to wrestle with mortality in an utterly secular way. Like I am the least religious person on the planet. I think this is it. This is it. This, you know, that we're just slightly glorified animals. And then as you know, this, I've written a very sexually explicit book that is sort of my meditation on sex and power. That book has an epigraph that from Robert McKells who says, uh, Everything is about sex except everything is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. In a way the whole book worries that particular question. And you know, I feel like I've written a little bit of I don't know if you ever got that book of mine called War is Beautiful, the New York Times Pictorial Guide no, to the Glamour of Arm Armed Conflict. It's sort of a a critique of New York Times front page color war photography in which I argue the pictures are outlandishly pornographic in their covert cheerleading for the beauty of war. So I feel like there's some part of me that wants to touch on some big subjects, war. I mean, that book just, you know, it's just about war photography, but at least, you know, it's about war. I've done a book on sex and death. You know, I've done books on celebrity or mass media I've done books on, you know, vicariousness. So, and, what's, know, so what's left? What's, what's left? <laughs> I know what you mean. I'm trying to figure that out. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm hardly at death's door, but I am 62, and I thought I feel like, okay, you know, I've done books on, you know, all these subjects. It's not as if I have some boring check. It's like, David, you must write a book on late market capitalism. Like, I'm not a journalist in that particular sense. I think I do, though, just listen to my own internal Geiger counter. Like, um, the book I'm working on now is called, you might find this funny, it's called The Very Last 
interview, a novel, where basically I have a cat and mouse game between an interviewer who's based totally upon you, of course. No. <laughs> it's, a, it's about time you wrote about me. Exactly. I mean, it's basically, the book is that I, I, I've gone back and called every question that's ever been asked of me in every interview going back to my first book, a novel called Heroes in 1984. And I've either transcribed the audio or videotape or I found the original exchange. And so I found around 2,700 questions in all of these interviews over 35 years. And I'm trying to basically use these questions as a launch pad for a man confronting himself, a man being confronted by someone else. Anyway, that is my current rather burgeoning project. Well, one of the things I notice about you um, is that you're one of the most honest writers that I read. When I'm reading a David Shields book, and it's you know, and it's not the parts that you're um, you know collaging or grabbing from someone else, but when I read your writing, especially in the Sex and Power book, uh, it's right. bracing. Like, and you have uh-huh. you have courage to okay. go there on the page. Like, is that something um, that you have to? struggle with it all or work to to get there or is it something that comes easily to you i mean that's the million dollar qu- question isn't it that, that for lack of a better word that's sort of my i mean i can't stamp this word but it's sort of my brand isn't it like it's the thing that i do like i i tr- you know i just triple down on my own psychic stuff and hope that it has resonance for the reader. You know, I've always quoting that line of Montaigne who says something like, uh, I'm going to sort of mess up the line. But basically, he argues that every person, if you understand a single person carefully enough, there's the hope that he or she might understand something about the human condition. It's sort of the essayist mantra. If Joan Didion's writing about her migraines or, um, you know, um, St. Augustine is writing about his spiritual impasse, or Rousseau is writing about his love affair with with his nanny. I mean, the whole point isn't that I'm interested or those writers are interested in their own terribly fascinating lives. It's that, you know, the hope is that, you know, this wonderful Yates on I've always loved, the mirror turn lamp. If I turn a mirror on myself with a rigorous enough light, I'm hoping that becomes a lamp of illumination for the reader. And so it seems to me it's incumbent upon me just as a literary strategy. I better be pretty damn candid with myself. Otherwise, I'm going to be phoning in sentimental truisms and the reader will yawn. I mean, I think the core of the essay form is that it's a vertical form by which I mean the reader is waiting to see 
a deeper and deeper depth charge depth charge from the rider as he or she is exposing more and more of their own emotional life. I mean, that just seems to me the way the essay form works. And I guess I might be relatively extreme. I mean, what was that? Um, there was a relatively generous New York Times review a week ago or so. And what did the, the, the critic... Parole Segal says something. She's had a very funny line where she says something like, in matters of indiscretion, David Shields goes way beyond the sound barrier or something like that. Well, that's how I feel. Cause it, it's like, like what? what are you doing saying this stuff? It's so inappropriate. But anyway, jump in, Brad. I've been been babbling on here. No, but I'm, I'm glad to hear you uh, quote that because that's kind of how I feel. It's like... Uh... I guess reading some of the things that you're willing to talk about, and, and they say this, like in uh, books about writing or in classes that you might take, that the writer is supposed to say the unspeakable things right. that, the, that all of us feel but don't necessarily sure. have the like, ability to articulate. Right. And yet, when I read your book, I'm like, and, and I'm far from the most well-read person in the world, but I feel like I've read enough books to know that normally writers in contemporary American literature don't go there. And Especially, I would say, white, male, straight, late middle-aged writers. Like, who cares about that person's little agonies? Like, but anyway, but I mean, I think, I think of a couple things. Oh, one, I think, I seem to think in quotations too much. But anyway, there's a wonderful line of Picasso's who says, The enemy of great art is good taste. I've always loved that. And I feel like that whatever I have, I don't have good taste. Like I'll say weird stuff, like because it's it's interesting to me whether about my sort of guilty pleasure in Trump's insane antics and the way that I feel like if he makes me addicted to his carnival esque antics, then through my own stupid addiction to Trumpiana, maybe that we can understand something about his larger appeal to a general populace. Well, he's a candidate uh, and, a, and a politician who I think fuses a lot of interests of yours. I mean, it's like the reality. Oh, that's fat. Tell me about it's, like, it's, how re- so- it, well, it's reality. Totally. It's media. It's performative. It's performative. And it's also hugely narcissistic. I mean, like he's, I actually sort of say in the book, he's the world's worst, best personal essayist. It's always about himself. To me, he's a cautionary tale of the self-reflexive personal essayist. Yeah, that's. I mean, he just he literally. I mean, it's doesn't. Always, there's not a breath he takes where it's not about him, right? <laughs> and you know, it's funny. Uh, I know, and that he weirdly owns that. It's so strange. And there is, and this is a hard thing to say uh, because, like you said, you you vehemently oppose <laughs> pretty much everything he stands for, uh, especially as president. But I remember when he was campaigning, or at some point in the process. I was thinking back to one of his Howard Stern interviews, which appear in your book. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I feel like the, the Trump quotes, the direct quotes that you uh, intersperse throughout the book are among some of the more arresting passages where you're hearing him talk in his own voice prior to his, right. poli- his political, you know, his experience. And you know. that, that there's 
sometimes he'll say astoundingly interesting things, or not about astoundingly, but he has a deeply tragic, very nihilistic take on the human condition. And I think a big part of his appeal against, let's say, the anodyne, touchy-feely, vetted, you know, poll material of, of, say, Hillary, or even of Obama in a certain way, that someone who, who seemingly will say what's on his mind, I think it's very performative, but in a way that does circle back, because, you know, my whole project is to say weirdly electric things that you're not supposed to say, and I can see how how Trump is that. I mean, you know, again, I'm quite active in, you know, the so-called resistance, but as a person, a thinker, a citizen, a spectator, you know, I'm weirdly wrapped, you know, R-A-P-T by his amazingly performative stuff. And then the other thing I was thinking about was one of my many lawyers (laughs) said to me, the law is my muse. And I thought that was such an in- insightful thing. Not that either of these books courts legal trouble, but a couple of my books have had complicated legal journeys. Which ones? Well, primarily Reality Hunger, of course, and War is Beautiful, the New York Times photo book. But I feel like that she's on to something and that she said in that, I don't know if the law is my muse per se so much as Trouble is my muse. Like, I'm interested in getting in, into trouble on the page, into making myself uncomfortable. And, that you know, I think part of it is just trying to remain existentially alive. Like, I'm not riveted by, say, the way I'm supposed to be by, say, plot or setting or character or... Uh, even conventional memoiristic things such as, you know, the long arc of someone's spiritual journey from, you know, their childhood in in West Texas to triumph at the alcoholic addiction center or whatever, like that whole granular arc, I just, it doesn't interest me as much. So the thing that I'm, that gets me to the page is to say alarming things about myself and hope I'm offering something insightful about the human condition. I think people who like my work meet me halfway and say, holy Moses, this book is really discomforting. And I've never had somebody say that stuff, but, um, you know, say moi, like I too... I'm confused about the relationship between sex and love and marriage and porn and power and that we're all bozos on this bus. I think people who don't like my work, you know, there aren't very many, and I'm sure there are plenty because my work is relatively extreme in its strategies, find the work, what, narrowly personal or too much information or all that. And in my view, they're not meeting me halfway, but... So here's what comes to mind. And I speak um, of your work. I think I speak of some of the struggles I have in my own work. Uh, I've been trying to write a memoir. I've been talking about it endlessly on this show. But it's, mm-hmm. it deals with like my son's health. It deals right. with personal stuff. 
And I think one of the struggles that I have in trying to tell a story like that is a kind of inner resistance to the tr- like the traditional arc of these kinds of books, mm-hmm. a victim narrative. Sure. And, or, then, uh, and quasi-triumph. Like and quasi-triumph. Victim slash triumph. Is yeah. that you, you, I feel like a sense of obligation to resolve things in a way that feels really uh, at odds with the truth. And then I also... I think temperamentally, and I, I feel like you share this, have uh, like an in, like a, a strong inner aversion to rendering myself on the page as any kind of hero. Right. <laughs> and it seems like incumbent upon the memoirist, uh, especially if you're you know you're writing about some struggle or right. deep wound, mm-hmm. that the, there's an expectation in the reader that okay we're going to resolve this and this person's going to triumph and they're going to be the hero and they're going to reach some deep spiritual understanding. And that's a, that's a problem for me. Is that a problem for you? Well, I mean, it's, I, I, I hope I far out maneuver that particular problem. I mean, that's so much not what I do. I know it's like the opposite. You know, of what and you like, do. you know, like, I don't know where it is. I mean, I would just say bravo that you have a resistance to that. Cause I know, you know, of your son and his health and that there would be a conventional memoir that you could package in which, you know, the last chapter is the family off on a vacation to, you know, Palm Springs and your son is walking and writing a brand new libretto or whatever the thing yeah, is. Yeah. And but that, you know, I think and obviously there is a commercial imperative out there. And, and what is it? I mean, that's really... I don't know whether it's the appropriation of the publishing industry by the movie business or, I mean, or, I mean, I just think there have always been sentimental narratives which are commercial. And and what is it in us? You know, I think it's a good thing. I mean, when you think of literature, doesn't it tend to tell difficult truths? I mean... Like there's a line in The Trouble with Men, I quote from Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst, who says something like, uh, love, I mean, this is not stuff you're supposed to say, but in a way it's the animating truth of this particular book. Love is giving what you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. And I... I tried that line out on my wife. She goes, what the hell? Like, no, that's not right. But and it doesn't mean that one doesn't love one's wife and one's daughter and one's cat and one's father. But it means that romantic love is essentially phantasmagorical, that we are dreaming the other person into existence, that we are ships passing in the proverbial night. And the idea that we really, that we are projecting our own huge psychic drama on that other person. And so I'm not sure how well I'm answering your good question, Brad, other than, you know, I think we have a bunch of fellow travelers. So many of the writers I really admire, and some of them live here in Los Angeles. You know, Bernard Cooper, Sarah Manguso, uh, Maggie Nelson. Jeff Dyer, you know, these Wait, are why all, are they why are they all in L.A.? <laughs> well, because I don't know. Those are just four writers who happen to be here. I mean, right. I mean, I can think of some other folks in L.A. I mean, part of it is that I mean, it's a good question. I don't know. If there's some other people. 
I think partly, I mean, again, just spinning out a rather glib theory that, you know, obviously the culture industry in L.A. is dominated by film and television to a certain degree, music, and that in a way those are such huge operations and that, you know... I think there's a sense in which, because those have to reach such a wide audience in order to justify the $75 million, the $150 million to make a movie, they're going to have the up the uptick at the end of the film. They just uh, almost they have, have to. to, have yeah. to. Even if it's a goodish movie, it's going to come up at the end. And so, I mean, I think... You know, I know. I mean, I'm pretty friendly with all those folks. I mean, two people have jobs teaching at USC, and you know, so that you know, it's. I don't think it's like, oh, there's some new LA poetic essay thing. Perhaps there is, and um, Mira Gonzalez is here as well, isn't she? She is. Yeah. I I love her book, selected tweets that she wrote with um, with Tao Lin. That's an incredible book. Yeah. So I guess there there might be a sense that's that, sitting right up there. Yeah, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of that book and and actually teach it. It's it's a brilliant book. But um and your work as well is part of that. And so I think there's a sense in which you know, I mean, you have to I mean, part of me is really jealous of people who write that goodish or pretty good book that follows those conventional contours and I sort of wish on some stupid level that I were that mainstream because, you know, I, I hope I'm a good writer. I've got stories to tell, but it's like, I'm not, I would, and I'd write that book if I could write that book. I can't write that book, not because I'm so brilliant, but it's because that's not my take on the human condition. You just have to follow your own, your own nerve endings, right? That's right. But I mean, how far along are you? Do you have, you probably have hundreds of pages yeah, of notes. It's a big, it's a big mess. I mean, it's been like through multiple versions. I'm, I'm sure. I'm working my way through it, but. But I think the books that really last are those books that, you know, aren't just glibly nihilistic, like, oh, you know, that my son is battling the serious health thing. Why bother with Like, it really, it gets in there and gets really messy, but, and, and maybe doesn't fall easy narrative arcs. And maybe has a feeling more like Department of Speculation. Perhaps it, it jumps around a bit. But, you know, I think we all write the books that we can write and then we back form a theory to explain it. And, you know, I have a theory that Department of Speculation was original. It was at some point like a 4000 page manuscript. We'll have to ask. I, 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 I want to believe that. For some reason, I find that thought comforting. I'm did like, you how have did she... her on the show? Was I know. I never caught her. I'm dying uh -huh. to talk to her. But uh... it's a good book. I think. I think. I don't. Maybe. Maybe. I, that would be an interesting. I mean, that would be a wonderful thing in which we, you know, that we looked at various books that have that feel. If they began, I, I'll bet you not. But we can see. So I want to ask you about your editorial process. Um, obviously, you know, you, like, like you said, you, sh you shoot a lot of film, so you're reading books, you're highlighting. You're... I'm emailing people. I'm I'm writing my own stuff. I'm I'm curating past stuff I wrote. I'm emailing friends like crazy. How do you read the internet? Do you highlight? Are you grabbing copy? Like you I'm, have? I'm just grabbing like like crazy stuff. Like I'm trying to think of. Okay, let's just take this new book, The Trouble with Men. You know, which is, as we're saying, a very brief book, 130. 
eight pages or something like that. It only has perhaps 35,000 words. Maybe of those words, maybe, I don't know, maybe 15,000 or so are quotations from other people. I don't know if it's that high, but, you know, some of it's me and some of it is everyone from, you know, porn stars to, you know, a psychoanalyst. And I'm just, I'm grabbing stuff. And um, everyone always asks me, like, how do you know what to pull? Because obviously the question of sex, you know, one could endlessly research that forever. But to me, what's interesting, and maybe I'm just being lazy or simply triage, whereby I can read a 50-page essay by Leo Bersani called The Rectum is a Grave, this amazing essay about AIDS in the Bay Area in the 1980s. And I can just fly through it. It's this long, dense academic essay. I'm like, that line, that's all I want. Like at, at this point, I feel like I've developed relatively good antennae for, you know, listening to a bunch of Howard Stern episodes with Trump or I literally watched every episode of The Apprentice, you know. You did. You watched did. every single I, one. I had some research assistants help, but I basically either read transcripts or watched them. And I'm just like, boring, 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 that. That. And it's like at this point, I'm, you know, sometimes I think of myself more as a film editor than as a writer because I'm, I'm taking all this stuff. And then remixing it. Yeah. So at this point, I've developed decent scissors, I would say. Okay. But the stuff that you do write, and just to kind of circle back to what I was saying about how candid you are on the page and how you, to an unusual degree, will kind of go there. Um, mm -hmm. Is this something that comes naturally to you at this point? or Because one of the surprising things I think about writing when you get into the editorial process is how no matter how honest you feel you are as a person, you can sort of, you know, dial it down. You can lie to yourself even, and you catch it in the edit and you're like, Oh my God, like, totally. So do you have those kinds of blind spots and are you in the edit sharpening your language to get it to be maximally candid or I does that, so. is that how it works? I think that's great. I mean, I think I'm sure I have, excuse me, blind spots, you know, where I think some review of the book, I think it was actually the Times Review said uh, something like, you know, it's interesting Shields doesn't spend more time unpacking whether this very project is problematic or something. I forgot how she said it, but, you know, I'm sure I tell myself I'm honest but or candid, but I'm sure I have massive blind spots to things. I You know, people often will point out, like, yeah, you're honest in these ways, and you're, you know, you are conveniently blind to this. I mean, at this point, I what, kinda, what do people can, like say that you're um, conveniently blind to? I'm trying to think. I was afraid you'd say that, because I think, I feel like the work is relatively candid. I think, I'm trying to think of whether, you know, let's say Trouble with Men is the most extreme version, where it's, you know, this remark, to me, it's remarkably naked account of one man's sort of psychosexual, mildly sadomasochistic drives. And because, you know, like one of the it's things like, what is he going to say next becomes the energy of the work, I think. 
But, I mean, the only thought I was going to have, Brad, was this idea that at this point, I've boxed myself in such that in a way, in a funny way, each book has to raise the stakes. Like, <laughs> like I thought after the thing about life where I say the length of my erect penis, you know, I remember that my daughter was in high school and all the kids were like, teased her like is your dad crazy or whatever you know it's like no he's okay he just sort of overshares and then i was like i thought well that was as far as that could go and then you know like each book i raise it's almost like what's he gonna say next become i mean in a way i'm hugely influenced by stand-up comedy like you know I, i grew up in san francisco and la and you know i just i just love stand up and i'm you know i i grew up with a bad stutter and still have remnants of it now. And I feel like a big animating force to me is I really couldn't talk as a kid. It was a really bad stutter. And now as a writer, there was a feeling in me that like, I'm not going to waste the chance when I write on the page. And in a way, if I were to write in a falsely sentimental way, that would be a kind of, of stuttering, if you see what I mean. Like, here's my chance to talk on the page exactly how I want. And there's a sense in which my sort of extreme truth-telling is a kind of powerful revenge on my childhood stutter, if that oh, makes sense. That's a, I think that's a like, pretty astute like analysis. Like, I'm going to talk now and, you know, damn you, listen to me because... I own this platform now, so I'm going to say some weird stuff about Trump. I'm going to say some, I hope, alarming stuff about sex and power and porn. And it's like, deal with it, because I get to talk now. So, okay, you know? <clears throat> um, the Sex and Power book, uh, it's, it, there's gender, sex, <laughs> a lot of hot-button issues, especially in this particular to climate. To how did you navigate that? Did you did you have to work through fear? Did you have somebody vet it, or did you or did you just go forward and let the cards fall? I know. I think I. To be honest, I had a, you know, a pretty solid draft, even maybe a near final draft, way before Me Too. Like, it, I think there would be a way of misperceiving this book as some sort of a opportunistic post me Too book in which a guy kind of owns his own complicity or something like his own sexuality and maybe but it it really i had the book i think i can't recall but i think it was virtually done and then the irony was or it wasn't you know the unfortunate like that the book was submitted to publishers almost like the moment of the Harvey Weinstein stuff coming out. And I think, you know, I think the small press, Mad Creek Books did a beautiful job with it. I mean, I just think it's got a beautiful cover and I just think it's a really gorgeous little physical object. But I think a lot of trade publishers kind of were like, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) Like at this time of Louis C.K., Charlie Rose, Trump, uh, Harvey Weinstein, blah, 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 like who who wants to hear anything about male sexuality? Like, even if it's maybe a burn all bridges book, no thank you. And like, you know, and so 
Anyway, I just, like, the book was essentially done by the time all of this happened. But, you know, I've I've worried. I mean, I'm amazed I finished the book. I'm amazed that the book is published. And I'm sort of amazed that my wife is sort of reluctantly okay with the book. Yeah, I was going to ask you about how, like, how she responded. Because the She's been book is very, it's very much about your marriage. Right. To a degree. To a degree, it's about, yeah. To a, I mean, well, A, to a degree, because that's not all that it's no. about. But it's also candid about the um, psychodynamics and sexual dynamics of uh, an intimate relationship and a marriage that I feel like is unusual on the page. Thanks. Uh, I mean, especially, I, especially in nonfiction. You know, you can see this oh, in fiction rendered. Mean. It's sort of easier there. Like, okay, here's some, you know, whips and chains in... A novel, it's like, okay, that's those crazy characters. Right. I know, like, I have, like, I think, I mean, again, I try to be well-read, but I don't know if I have read, but I'm not aware, frankly, of anyone else, you know, I'm not aware of that that book in in Western literature where, like, a straight white male explored his own emotional masochism. Like, I'm, I'm not sure what that book is. Like, there's plenty... Of gay writers who have explored that incredibly well, like Michelle Larie's Manhood. But like that's not, you know, the straight masculinity is so invested in power. And to me, I thought it was just interesting to have the stupidity or nerve to say, like, I'm going to explore how I'm drawn toward, in a certain way, a kind of self-defeat or self, I don't know what, self destruction in relatively mild ways. Okay. So this brings up an interesting question. Uh, because you're, you're so unsparing on the page when it comes to depicting your inner life and your outer life. Uh, and you've done this across books. How do you feel about yourself? Like, like after spending so much time really like kind of nitpicking yourself mm-hmm. over all these years and through all these uh, books. Like how, how's your relationship with yourself? That's such a great question. And I think I actually have the answer in the sense that, you know, that awfully well-rubbed Nietzsche line, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know, which has become just this utter t-shirt cliche. But I think Maybe the surprising punchline is that I'm okay with myself. Like, I really, I'm proud of the work I've done as a writer. I'm proud of the work I've done as a sort of emotional spelunker of my own psyche. And I feel like, again, sort of knock on wood, like, I feel like I've kind of come out the other end. Like, I'm like, I'm not really that afraid of myself. And I feel like, you know, it is, as they say, cheap therapy or perhaps not so cheap therapy. Like there's this line of Sharon, E.M. Sharon, the um, French Romanian philosopher, who says, only one thing matters, learning to be the loser, which is a very anti-American idea. I think Sharon means that, uh, you know, we all ultimately lose, that we lose our actual lives, that we become dust. So it's kind of a good idea to learn how you're a loser. Like, to be a winner is, to me, just a very false stance because we all lose. We all end up dead. And, you know, there is no God. There is no transcendental 
signifier, like this is it, that we're just animals. And so I think that was the challenge of, of this book in particular, Trouble with Men, is that, you know, my God, I'm sort of amazed that I wrote the book, published it, and that the reviews have been sort of, to me, sort of surprisingly generous so far and positive-ish in this particular cultural moment. I'm like, you know, I I think it was a kind of, I don't know, I, I don't want to like pat myself on the back, but like I think, just to answer your question in a relatively direct way, like I... I might surprise you by saying I like myself to my surprise. And I think it's the work, the writing actually got me there. Like, like I've owned it so much on the page. It's like, you know, I'm fine with that. Like, I think it's really important to know yourself and to embrace your fate. You know, amor fate, as Nietzsche says, you know, love your fate. And I feel like the project of this book was to find out what my fate is, what my psychic mechanism is, and to really kind of live with it. I feel like that's a very muscle-building thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you spend that much time working on a project and investigating yourself like that. At some point, I feel like you're going to start to have some compassion for yourself. Right. <laughs> I mean, you, it's inevitable. And, and, and also, it should be said, compassion for others, because totally. we're all sort of reflected in one another. And I think that's part of the appeal of your work for the people whom it's for, is that even though Completely. you know the specifics aren't necessarily the same, right. to, to see somebody reckon with themselves right. on the page that honestly, uh, for me anyway, it's a kind of a relief. Thank you, Brad. That's, that's really meaningful. I mean, I think... I mean, in some strange way, I think of the book as not the world's worst marriage manual in the sense that, you know, it's really hard to be open with yourself or your spouse, not even just about sort of sexual stuff, but just, you know, we all are mask upon math. But the book, you know, I kind of survived this telling of the book so far, you know, and I feel like Man, if I could survive this, I can survive anything. Because it was a rather, I remember after finishing the book, you know, a few years ago, I was like, I never had felt so altered by a book. The possible exception of the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. That You know, that book really got me in touch with my sort of death haunt, with Thanatos, you know, with with death and this book in in another way got me in touch in this really spooky way with you know another kind of death haunt by which I mean you know the kind of ways in which you know I might be maybe slightly more than other people although not hugely more so you know slightly drawn toward a kind of emotional self-punishment and like that's sad, you know, like that's, but to own it was really interesting. I'm sure. Did it make it even slightly, to make it maybe slightly less sad? What you mean? The process of owning it. it. Well, completely. Like, I feel like I came out again, I'm not here to, you know, be arguing for the transcendental 
qualities of spiritual memoir. You know, we've already agreed that's not what we're about. But, you know, it's like, so what? You know, and I feel like, I guess I have a strong feeling that people who push back against the book, and there have been relative, like, I thought people would say, dude, you are you are messed up, like get some therapy or something. But so far from readers, from women, from men, from reviewers, it's sort of like, you know, so far people said like, yeah, um, so what, you know, or not so what, but it's sort of like, yeah, these are difficult things you're exploring. And I promise you, I have my own versions of these. I won't tell you what they are, but I mean, it was a very gratifying thing for me when I, I published, you know, the book. I don't know if you ever saw this book of mine from 2015, I think it was called That Thing You Do With Your Mouth, a sexual autobiography of Samantha Matthews. Yeah, yeah. As told to me and my cousin who had been abused in childhood and she and I collaborated on a book that explored how she had been what she called formatted psychically and sexually by that very early sexual abuse that that she suffered ages two to five and how in a variety of ways her entire life has been a revisitation of that a transcendence of it an embrace of it very complicated but it's terribly important is that we avoid the oprah narrative recovery story. I mean, no offense to Oprah, but, um, you know, that we wanted not to say all things are really neatly wrapped up. But anyway, it was terribly meaningful to me that Samantha read this book. And I feel like she, you know, has suffered a lot in this area. And she liked the book a lot. And that was very, I mean, I'm not sure I have anything to add other than I feel like that she's a bit of an expert in this psychic territory far more than I am, and she thought it got to some really imp- important thing. Yeah, well, I think when the truth is in the room, people recognize it, even if it's not necessarily their truth. If somebody's really being honest with you, right. it's hard to act with outrage if you're a honest right. broker. Thank, you know, I think that's really it. And I, it's an interesting thing I've fallen into, you know, as you... As you may know, you know, I started out as a relatively conventional novelist. I wrote a first novel, which the Los Angeles reader called almost a parody of the conventional novel. (laughs) (laughs) And then a second novel called Dead Language is kind of a growing up novel about a kid with a speech impediment. And then I wrote a book called Handbook for Drowning, a novel in stories. And then basically, you know, I was, those are not all that conventional of a novel, but those were sort of existing in a relatively safe space of kind of literary, contemporary American fiction. It was like, okay, they would have some rather odd elements of it, but they, you know, they were that thing. And then with my first book of nonfiction, this book called Remote Reflections on Life in the Shadow of Celebrity, I started writing in this very personal way and an essayistic way, and often a quasi-confessional way, but always marrying the confession to a larger cultural and human conundrum. That's become my go-to thing. And it's really influenced heavily. I don't know if you share my admiration 
of Ross McElwee's documentary movies. I don't know if, if we've talked about like Sherman's McElwee, March. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that film on PBS in I think 1989. It was just blew my mind. I just am hugely influenced by Renata Adler's Speedboat, which you know, as you can, I'm sure you can see, is a you know pretty clear template for some of of my work, but also hugely McElwee. Um, Sherman's March that that thing that he does in that that film some of it is confessional some of it is comedy some of it is cultural investigation some of it is reportorial and quasi-journalistic and it all comes together very subtly into a sustained meditation on basically the male gaze and I just I remember seeing that film and just saying that's what I want to do. As it's nice to, nice to have an epiphany moment like that. It really was. It was like, holy Moses. That's like, Ross, thank you. That's, you know, it was, that's, and it, I think it was helpful that it wasn't in my field exactly. I think if a writer had done it, it'd be like, uh-oh, they've stolen my thunder. Whereas as McAway, and he's continued to make amazing films like, um, that one about a, a tobacco farm in North Carolina, this extraordinary movie as well. I'm, I'm forgetting it, its title right now. But again, he's, to me, a, just a really helpful model for, you might call it, the anti-memoir essayistic gesture, by which I mean he often explores something with a personal element, as you might if you are writing about your family and son, or as, as I might in writing, say, a book like The Trouble with Men. But the thing that McAwee does, he always keeps a strong pedal tone on this is not narrowly and granularly, microscopically personal. He's always exploding it out. So it, it does what I call rotate out toward metaphor. It's like, yes, it's about me, but me as a vector on this larger philosophical grid. Well, that makes sense to me, though, to like ventilate it a little bit. Exactly. Because that's a wonderful just, it gets term. exhausting to I just know. be about your. I, that's how I feel when I'm like, I, I can't, st- I don't want to keep talking about myself. I know what you mean. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't know your project, but that like, and yet the culture is telling you in this rather culture of narcissism way, just give us, you know, play by play of everything with your son and your family and. It you know, it might as well be you know, a lot. What's it called? Lifestyles movie of the like. What's that? Lifetime. Channel? Lifetime movie of the week. <laughs> you know, like that's you know. And again, there might be some really charming lifetime movies of the week. But like, you know, here's our one chance to tell difficult truths. That's the whole burden of literature to me. It's like when we think of amazing works, and you know, they might have joy in them and comedy and ecstasy, like. I don't know, the whatever that is, Emily Bronte or Virginia Woolf or Shakespeare or, or whatever, but that, like, the reason that we go back and read, you know, Petronius, the, the Satyricon or whoever it is, it's like, holy Moses, they didn't hold back. They brought, you know, they, they brought difficult knowledge to bear on the situation. And you can tell it, as you say, they weren't lying. Yes, there was probably some element of of artifice. There might even have been a cultural arbiter who prevented, say, Petronius from publishing certain things. But you can tell there's a, a big difference between quasi-truth-telling 
and scorched earth truth telling. And I'm really interested, obviously, in the latter. Well, and, and you know, it should also be said that there are people who can write about authentic spiritual epiphanies. People do have very totally. uh, elevated human experiences. and Like you're thinking of, say, Annie Dillard or Anne Lamott or, yeah. or, or Barry Lopez or someone who, I know what you mean, they just are on a different psychic register than I am. Yeah, but it just, I, I guess like what it makes me feel like is I feel a, a certain pressure. It's like, wow, I, I got to. I got to somehow occasion one of these epiphanies. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if I have it in me. Well, I think if you want those epiphanies, showers are really crucial. Yeah. Take a lot of showers, I think. But then I think, you know, that's sort of what, in a way, that, that both of these books are about a bit. is like Trump, for all of his awfulness, his whole appeal is that he seems to be speaking which I think is actually nonsense, but he, he's very good at performing a quasi-sincerity. Or, you know, like after Charlottesville, like, yes, you can say it's awful, and I don't agree with anything he said, but he phrased it as, hey, I'm just telling the truth. It didn't seem vetted. That's a, a rather extreme example because it was so gr- grotesque. But in smaller ways where he's... and. I forgot exactly where I was trying to take this other than, you know, Trouble with Man, the Trump book, your project, my projects in general. You know, they're going all in on emotional turbulence and emotional difficulty. And I think, in my view, those are the best books. I mean, again, I'm just I'm looking at some books on, on your shelves. I don't know all of them, but I know some of them. And the ones I really love, you know, Mary Rufel, Jenny Ophel, um, Mira Gonzalez, you know, Tao Lin. It's like you can feel a kind of impulse toward, what would you call it? Emotional, psychological, philosophical uh, damn the torpedoes nakedness that I find that really exciting. Not everyone does, but that's that's my thing. Have you ever done therapy? You know, you would think I would have given <laughs> all of my manifest many issues. You know, I've done very little. I've had a lot of speech therapy over the years, you know, just to to gain some control over my speech, which has been helpful. But um, not, I mean, just a smattering, just a smattering. And, you know, I sort of, I've always loved that Rilke line, you know, if they take away my demons, they'll take away my angels as well. Like, you know, I do think that, whatever issues underpin my psychic stuff is clearly wedded to my writing mania. You know, I'd be, you know, somewhat maniacally productive. How much, how many hours a day do you work on your writing? Well, it's more like how many hours a day do I not work on my writing? Cause I'm <laughs> sort of, I'm always working on it, but you know, at this point, I'm not the kind of writer who says, you know, I'm going to write from 9.15 till 3.15. It's more like I'm writing on my phone as I'm walking to school. I'm emailing a research assistant to find this document. I 
suddenly have some hours at night where I'm, I'm, I'm writing. So I would say in general, on, on most days I write from 10 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon, and then again at night I write from 10 at night until 2 a.m. You know, those are, are hours in which I'm largely around my computer. I turn off the web to a certain degree and try not to check email, et cetera, and that I'm kind of trying to make some kind of progress. And what about your reading diet? Do you have, like, can you see patterns? Are there certain kinds of books that you're drawn to? And because of the nature of your work and because you're always kind of like looking and grabbing, are you reading books through? Or are you reading books quickly and finding those golden nuggets and like extracting them? <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm guilty of literally tearing out pages of books. Like I'll be reading a book, which I don't particularly like or whatever. And I just find a page I like and I just rip it out. You know, I don't feel any sacred sense. You know, as Sarah Manguso says, she's not a completist, you know, like in the sense that, you know, there's no reason to read all of Kafka. Just read the Kafka that you're really interested in. You know, and I don't tend to love authors. I love individual books. Like, you know, I like a little bit of Nabokov, but, you know, a few books. But it's not like I'm a Nabokov scholar or whatever. But I probably, right now, I'm a, l- a little bit trapped, and I reread certain books over and over and over and over again. You can probably guess who they are. Sure. You know, Simon Gray, David Markson, J.M. Coetzee, certain people. But I'm trying to break out. I'm trying to of, of what I am reading now. Um, you know, um, but, you know, I, you know, as do you, you get a lot of books in the mail. I don't get quite as many books in the mail, but I certainly get some. And... Um, you know, some of it is that, some of it is student work, some of it is research. And so, you know, I wish I were going back and rereading Proust, but I'm, you know, I mainly, I do read somewhat vampirically in the sense that I read stuff that feeds me. So even though I've reread Simon Gray's Smoking Diaries, you know, probably 10 times, which is a book I just absolutely love and I think you would like a lot if you haven't, haven't tackled it. I read it because it weirdly gives me traction on my own work. That voice of Gray's is in my head. It's both very relaxed and very poetic. And it just gives me a certain tonality I really find helpful. I get that. Like, and I, you can, I can get the same way from certain music. It gets you into the frame of mind, exactly. you know, and it kind of gins you up to speak in your own voice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That he's so funny and so honest and so smart i'm like yeah i want to try to sound like that and um also i'm very you know it's that line of camus says something like you know if you're a real writer you ought to be able to read the first paragraph of a book and know whether the person is in your view a good writer or something like that i just you know i don't have i either i'm very impatient or very demanding or both but basically I, to me, I, I give a book maybe like 300 words. Like if I'm not absolutely riveted on the first page, again, not by plot or beautiful language, but like sheer intelligence. Like I read for intelligence, alas. And so that's really the essay form. Intelligence, humor, and vulnerability are some of the things. You know, comedy, you know, intelligence and vulnerability. Those are my sort of 
gestures I really care about. And so I probably, you know, I read in that, that realm an awful lot. I'm like now thinking like, wow, I would love to read a book by David Shields. Where <laughs> like, was a, where a conventional novel? No, no, I mean, no, I was actually, I had that thought before you came over. I was like, you know what? I think the arc of David's career is that he's going to eventually come full circle. And like the last book he writes That's is going to be... That's my fantasy, <laughs> The Correction yeah, right. by, Jay, by David Franzen. That, uh, that would be... That would be a beautiful fake out in which I wrote some really goodish, epic conventional novel. I'm not sure that gesture's available, but you're about to say something else. I was just going to say, because of your skepticism around uh, religion and your kind of uh, conviction that like, this is it, we're just like glorified animals. I would love to see you interacting with like, like new age, the new age community, like experiential research. I like, mean, like people who are interested in the, what is it called, the new singularity and all that? Well, or that not? are like ayahuasca circles or uh-huh. silent retreats and like uh-huh. all this kind of stuff. Like for somebody who's as skeptical as you and for somebody who, because um, you, you have kind of a comedic presence in your books. Thanks. I, it's meant to be a little funny. Uh, yeah. Like you're it's, sort so, of, it's so over the top. It's meant to be a little funny. Well, and also like, you know, you're the butt of the joke and like totally. it's self-deprecating. Totally. But totally. to see you in like a, as a fish out of water tale engaging with this stuff and then reflect that idea my I, god i've been trying to find what my next after the current project is but somehow that you imagine me sort of going from pond to pond of new age answers and just and and like experimenting with it try to hang with it and see what it see how it tests your ex, your expectations god, and your... you've just written my next book proposal. Well, you're, you're just demanding me in the acknowledgments. <laughs> it's not a bad idea at all. I, I just, don't know if I could. I mean, I don't know if I could. It's a. It would be a good challenge to me because mere skepticism isn't all that interesting. Like to try to find some kind of religiosity or something. Or yeah, or just to participate. Uh huh. You know, to actually participate and to put yourself in these environments and, God, to, and, to, and to see how you respond. Anyway, I say this as a fan of your work. Um, I know you got to get rolling and I just want to congratulate you on both of the books Thanks, Brad. and to thank you for making time during your swing through town to come talk to me. Thank you. All right. That is David Shields. His books are called the trouble with men. Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power. It's available from Mad Creek Books. And Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump. Available from Thought Catalog. You can find David Shields online at davidshields.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at underscore David Shields. Thank you to Kill Rockstars. And the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's the official app of this podcast. It is free. It's available wherever apps are available go get the app it's free uh who do i have coming up 
I've got Bali Kor uh, Joswal is coming up. She's the uh, book club author for April next week. I might do two episodes next week. We'll have to see if time permits. But I've got some good ones in the can and some more uh, in my calendar that are due to happen that I am excited about. So stay tuned. It's been a nice day. I had a good lunch. <laughs> Quiet, solitary lunch. I enjoy that. I have no problem with that. I've always been that way. It's a good yoga class. I try to do it once a week. I have this theory that it's gonna like, uh, I don't know. It's gonna do good things for me. I just need to, I feel like I need to be flexible. I don't want to get all like, I don't know, immobile. I want to be able to touch my toes. There's nothing wrong with that. Life's hard enough as it is. It's good to be flexible. Namaste, douchebag. Speed to the day.